Now, last week, we started looking at the Council of Chalcedon as providing a lens through which to read the Gospels. St. Gregory Palamas, which is much later, it's a thousand years later, St. Gregory Palamas, said that what we find in the Gospels is a politeia theoandropiki. Politeia theoandropiki. Politeia means a manner of life, right? We get the word politics from that. I also get the word police from that because it comes from the, the, the Greek polis, meaning city, civilized people, politeia. So politeia means a manner of life, but it, it, has, it has a notion of civility in it. The Orthodox Church, and because he was certainly speaking with the Orthodox Church when he said that, the Orthodox Church describes the life of Christ as a politeia theoandropiki God-manly theos means God anthropos means means man sometimes they, 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 they use the actual specific male form anir, um, andros rather than, than, the, than the genuine the, the generic form, anthropos but it's always in reference to Christ it's what in the what the Russians call, who, what Russian here is going to correct my, correct my pronunciation? Uh, I don't see Lila here. I'm hoping she's in the hospital having a baby. <laughs> what was that? I'm certain she really wishes she was having a baby today, too. I suspect so. But in Russian... That's called Bogo Cheloviak. Bogo Cheloviak. Which, did I get it right? Good enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have a Ukrainian back here. Well, you know how the Ukrainians are. Yes, we're very picky. <laughs> Bogo Cheloviak, okay? Means God man. God man. There's a manner of life. What it means is that Jesus is the person the second person of the Holy Trinity, but he has assumed as part of his own experience and being, pertaining to his own experience and being, the full experience of what it means to be a human being. So that he would model humanity. Nowhere in the Gospels can we celebrate, separate rather, separate these two things. Since there's only one subject, that's what's extremely important to think about. There's only one subject, one self-reflecting subject in the incarnation. That is the man, Jesus Christ. Now, somebody wants to say to me, what about the self-reflection of God? I have to tell you, I, do you know something about the self-reflection of God? I don't. <laughs> I don't at all. In fact, it makes no sense to me, except as an anthropomorphism, to speak that way. What the church believes is 
that God's Son so completely assumed our humanity that he's thinking like a man, which means that he is, he is learning. Um, I want to go through a little bit, since we have a little more time today, to go through a little bit of this with you, and then maybe look at some of the gospel texts, as we did last week. Now, this, this paper comes from 451, which shows you what really good paper they made back then. <laughs> Four fifty one, halfway through the fifth century. This is the Council of Chalcedon. Chalcedon is the city on the opposite side of the Bosporus from Constantinople. And today that's just a suburb, since they're linked by bridges. That's just a suburb of, of, of Constantinople. Um, they didn't want to meet in the city, so they met in the suburbs. Because uh, that's where the airport was, and the and there was <laughs> the hotels and, and this sort of thing. They met in 451 because there was a monk named Eutyches, who was a very holy monk and quite stupid. I was reading uh, just within. Early this morning, very early this morning, I was reading uh, some comments by uh, one of my favorite, my absolute favorite theologians today, David Bentley Hart. Uh, his 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 uh, his comments on the Da Vinci Code of Don Brown, and he says it is by far the best-selling novel ever written by a functional illiterate. <laughs> That was a great, great line. I, I, I'd love David just for, they don't call him David, they call him Ben. I would love him just if, it, if he'd never written anything else but, but that line. Uh, Eutyches, Eutyches was a monk who was very convinced that the humanity of Jesus was absorbed into his divinity. So that the thinking going on was not human thinking. It was God's thinking. The willing going on was not human willing. The experience was not a human experience. So they met at Chalcedon and condemned him. Um, fortunately, there was, no, there was no television in those days. There were no web, web pages. That sort of thing, because I'm sure I've got the slightest doubt from what I can see of Eutyches, he would have had his own blog site and uh, carried his nefarious ideas further. Let me just read with you some of this as we start start down. I read you, I think one, two, three. Um, I think I read read you the last paragraph last week. We'll back up and go through, work through this. Therefore, this sacred and great and universal synod. The word for universal, by the way, is ecumenical, ecumeni. Now in session, in its desire to exclude all their tricks against the truth, in teaching what has been unshakable in the proclamation from the beginning, decrees that the creed of the 318 fathers is above all else to remain inviolate. What creed is that? (laughs) Nicaea. The 318 fathers. Um, 
If you come to uh, Vespers on Saturday night, as the Lord prefers, <laughs> when we, on, those, on those Sunday mornings when we celebrate one of the ecumenical councils, and we do several times a year on Sundays, the Old Testament reading that night is from the book of Genesis, chapter 14, about, about Abraham taking the 318 servants and going out to rescue Lot and his family. Remember that story? And then they meet Melchizedek at the, uh, at the end of the chapter. The church has always loved that, that story because of the 318, the very same number, you know, and the fact that it's, it's the priest, it's the king priest, who ends up being the, the, the outstanding per- person who, who enters into the scene without father, without mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but in but abides forever a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So that, that's the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed at this time had been augmented in the year 381 by the First Council of Constantinople. The last part of the creed had been added. The creed as written by Nicaea ended up with the words, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's the way the Council of Nicaea had finished it. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that was the end of it. In 381, the Council decided they needed to say a little more about the Holy Spirit. So they added the words, okay, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. And we've been saying the, the creed that way since 381. So they added that last, that last part. Now that, that, that creed, it says here, is to remain inviolate. Okay. No, don't, don't monkey around. That child is not bothering me. But not bothering me at all. Okay. Okay. Uh, I can yell, yell louder than he can. <laughs> the, the council decrees that no one may monkey with that, with that, uh, with that creed. I'm not sure exactly what the word monkey is in Greek, but that's... <laughs> and because of those who oppose the Holy Spirit, it ratifies the teaching about the being of the Holy Spirit handed down by the 150 saintly fathers who met sometime later in the imperial city. That's the Council of 381. 150 fathers, 381. The teaching they made known to all not introducing anything left out by their predecessors, but clarifying their ideas about the Holy Spirit by the use of scriptural testimonies against those who were trying to do away with his sovereignty. Sometime between 325 and 381, somebody had, if you follow by the name of Macedonius, if memory memory serves, although I was young then, he denied the uh, full divinity of the Holy Spirit, which is why they elaborated that, the 150 fathers, in the year 381. And because of those who are attempting to corrupt the mystery of the economy, the economy, by the way, the Greek is economia, means all the activity outside of God. That's all, that's all it means. All the activity outside of God. Because of those who are attempting to corrupt the mystery of the economy and are shamelessly and foolishly asserting that he who was born of the Holy Virgin Mary was a mere man. It has accepted the synodical letters of the Blessed Cyril, 
already accepted by the Council of Ephesus. That's not with their words. This is somebody's explanatory note. That was in 431, Council of Ephesus. Pastor of the church in Alexandria, to Nestorius and to the Orientals, as being well suited to refuting Nestorius's mad folly and providing an interpretation for those who, in their religious zeal, might desire understanding of the saving creed. Now, what was the sin? Of, what was the sin? What was the heresy of Nestorius? Nestorius in 431 taught that there were two principles of subjectivity in Christ. Two principles of subjectivity. Human and divine. That starts to sound too much, too close to saying two persons. I'm not at all sure that that's what Nestorius intended, but the church, but the church found it way too close. Uh, Polycarp? Okay. He was trying to see, see if any hair was coming up. It's a special day. There's a thing now called True Grow. I don't know if that will work or not. I, I, it seems to work for grass. I, don't know. I mean, what is grass but, but, but green hair, really? See, Nestorius, Nestorius was understood, at least, as teaching that there were two principles of subjectivity in Christ. I've, I've talked to people about this a lot. And sometimes I have the impression that what Nestorius thought is, has not exactly disappeared from Christians. Uh, I don't mean just among Nestorians. I mean among other Christians. I mean members of the Orthodox Church. <laughs> who would, who would, they would absolutely affirm everything we say, and yet when they start to think about how Jesus functioned, they're effectively Nestorians. And sometimes he's knowing something as God, sometimes he's knowing something as man, and he sort of goes back and forth. He does a little shifting here and there. Um, but I may be wrong, and I certainly hope I am wrong. Third paragraph. To these it has suitably added, that the, the it there is the council itself, the council meeting in 451, it is suitably added against false teachers, false believers rather, and for the establishment of orthodox doctrines, the letter of the primate of greater, greatest and oldest Rome. Notice that the, the primacy of the Pope is acknowledged there. The primate of the greater and oldest Rome. By oldest Rome means the elder Rome, the, not Constantinople. The new Rome means the old Rome. Okay? The most blessed saintly Archbishop, Leo. Now what's that all about? When Eutyches started doing his teaching sometime in the late 440s, one of the people who was most upset was the bishop, the archbishop of, of uh, Antioch, a man by the name of Flavian. Flavian of Antioch. Flavian of Antioch. Yes, sir. Because when uh, 
Wait a minute. Hang on. There's no doubt that Flavian was the Archbishop of Constantinople. There's no doubt about that. Was he at that time? Yeah. Already? He was an Antiochian father. Right. He's from Antioch. Right. When you look at the Council of Constantinople, the first section actually is like there are Chinese. He was already he was already patriarch. Okay. Okay. Um, I appreciate the, I appreciate the correction. I appreciate the correction. My memory, and I say I was young then. <laughs> uh, so he was already at Constantinople. Okay. Flavian was an Antiochian an Antiochian father. Like Chrysostom. And of course, what was Chrysostom known as? He was not known as Chrysostom. He was known as Jan, John of Antioch. John of Antioch. Uh, anyway, Flavian, he was at Constantinople already. Okay. He wrote to the Bishop of Rome by the name of Leo. Uh, Leo, known afterwards as Leo Primus. They didn't know he'd be Leo the first at the time because they thought Jesus might return before there'd be a Leo the second. He wrote to Leo saying, you know, Leo, this doesn't sound right to me. This needs to be looked into. So Leo read it and says, no, this isn't right. And Leo wrote a letter, which is still to this day known as Leo's Tome. Okay. If you want to know more about that, there's a whole bunch of guys right back there that can tell you. Scott can tell you. Uh, Augustine can tell you. Uh, Peter can tell you. What about you, Alan? Can you tell them? Okay. <laughs> but at least those three. Okay. They'll tell you about Leo's Tome. Okay. Leo's Tome was written in Latin. That's kind of important to know. It was written in Latin because by far the best thinking on this subject is not being done in Greek. The best thinking on this subject was being done in Latin. There was a standard Trinitarian formulation in Latin long before there was one in Greek. And in fact, the Greeks eventually had to make themselves conform to the Latins. The, the Latin Trinitarian and Christological doctrine comes from a man named Tertullian, uh, who, who distinguished between the person and the natura. Okay, the person and the natura. Uh, so that for, for in the Holy Trinity there would be three persons, one natura. Now, that was, adopt, that was adapted for the Christological controversies of the 5th century, where you would have one person, two natures. Three persons, one nature in the Trinity, one person, two natures in Christ. To this day, this is how we hold our hands when we make the sign of the cross, right? Okay. Everybody with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, and humanity and divinity in Christ, the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. So when we start to make the way of the cross, we put our hands in the form of the, of the Trinitarian doctrine. All kinds of little pedagogical devices have been contrived over the centuries to remind Christians of this. When the bishop comes here, and I sure hope we get a bishop here coming pretty soon, okay. we'll see this. Vote for a good man, Steve. Steve is our, Steve is our delegate at the convention uh, this summer, and I feel sure we will elect a bishop uh, this summer. And if you don't like him, <laughs> you'll know who to blame. 
when the bishop comes and gives the blessing, he's, in one hand he has three candles, the other hand he has two, and they're all bound together at the base. And he gives the blessing this way. Uh, we had one Lutheran lady who had been attending the church for over two years. Remember her mom? She had been attending church over two years. Came to matins every day and divine liturgy uh, at matins every Sunday, divine liturgy. And as soon as she saw the bishop doing this, she said, wow, that foxes me out and she left. She never got, never did join the catechumenate. She, she just found this too weird. This, this, these, all these strange things and it seems to me one can make a really good case for leaving the Orthodox Church, but I don't think that's the one. <laughs> um, third paragraph. To these it is suitably added against false believers and for the establishment of Orthodox doctrines, the letter of the primate of the I read that in, a greatest and older Rome, the most blessed and most saintly Archbishop of Leo, written to the sainted Archbishop Flavian, and now I've been corrected that that is Constantinople by this time. To put down Eutyches' evil-mindedness because it is in agreement with great Peter's confession and represents a support we have in common. What is the great Peter's confession here? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay. That is Peter's confession. That is the rock on which the church is built. Uh, one of my favorite churches in the world is the, is the Renaissance Church, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And when I walk down around the, the dome, written in Greek and in Latin, it says, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Fair enough. I would rather it said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> oh, uh, but, Jesus, Peter identifies Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus identifies Peter, thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, anyway, that's the confession, of the of agreement with Peter's confession. So that Peter, who makes this profession of faith, which is the, the, the foundation of the church, is in the, the divinity of Christ as one person. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and represents a support we have in common. I love this this reliance on both the East and the West. The, uh, the, the church, this council is taking place in the East, but they, they declare their reliance on the West, uh, particularly on, on the Bishop of Rome. Um, I have not checked the Greek of this. It'd be interesting that that, that word Archbishop Leo, that'd be interesting, that is, that that is in the Greek. I haven't checked it, though. I can check it easily. Yeah, it is? It is? There's no use of the term Pope. No, 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 I wouldn't think of Pope. I was thinking of the word bishop. Because as far as I know, the bishops of Rome have never claimed the title archbishop. As far as I know. They've always claimed just the title bishop. Bishop of Rome. Oh. Um, so that, this, would be, this would be outside of my experience. To this day, the, 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 uh, the pope is known as the bishop of Rome. Um, I, I, think, I think you're wrong, though, about the use of not a title, but I think the name Papa was already being used in both Alexandria and Rome. As a popular title, it's, I mean, a popular. It starts in, in, in Alexandria in two forty. Third, the third century, third century. Okay. And then it, it gets picked. Yeah. It gets picked up by uh, um, Carthage. Carthage did it too. 
Okay. I, that, I learned so much from this guy. I didn't realize uh, in Carthage. But Papa, which is what Pope means, Papa is, is, a, is a, an affectionate term. You know, it's what, it's what say, Domenico calls his, his daddy, Papa. And so people, is that Baba in, in Egyptian? Baba? Baba? Papa's Greek. Okay. Um, the, uh, when the patriarch, the patriarch of, of, uh, of Alexandria was here a few years ago and, and uh, lectured over at North Park, uh, we're at, I think that's before eight of our present people were at North Park. I think so. Um, he, he's called Papa, and, he's, he's, he, and that's his title. He's Pope, Pope, Pope of Alexandria. But, the, but especially the bishops of Alexandria and Rome, that sort of stuck with them. And, and all it means is daddy. It's not, really not a title. It's a, it's a term of affection. Um, let's come down to that fourth paragraph. It is opposed, that is, who is it? It's the council. It is opposed to those who attempt, attempt to tear apart the mystery of the economy into a duality of sons, that would be Historius, and expels from the assembly of the priests those who dare to say that the divinity of the only begotten is passable, that is to say that the, human, the, the divine nature can suffer, and it stands opposed to those who imagine a mixture our confusion of the two natures in Christ, and that seems to be the teaching of Eutyches. The divinity and humanity of Christ were mixed together, kind of like you had mixed two beverages, and it's quite impossible to tell them apart. But see, if that is the case, then Jesus is not fully divine, <laughs> because his divinity has been diminished. Look, you find that beautiful child. His divinity has been diminished by a mixture. And he's not fully human because his humanity has been mixed with divinity. The church has never believed that. And it expels, this is again the council, it expels those who have the mad idea that the sermon form he took from us is of heavenly or some other kind of being. And it anathematizes those who concoct two natures of the Lord before the union but imagine a single after the union. Then comes the, the text we read, we read together last week. So following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly human and truly God and truly man, of a substantial soul and body, everything that comprises a human being, consubstantial homoousios with the Father, that's from the creed, isn't it? Homoousios with the Father as regards his divinity, and homoousios with us as regards his humanity. Same word is used for Jesus and us as used for Jesus and God. Homoousios. And then goes on begotten of the Father, before, before the ages from the Father, as regards his divinity. And I think we took this rest of this last month, this last, last week. Now, how does this affect one's reading of the Gospels? Uh, 
And that is, that's really the burden of the book that I hope to have into the hands of the publisher by March 15th, a book called Jesus in the Flesh that I spoke to you about last week. It's going to be published if, if, if I do pull it off. And I think they want me to pull it off because they've already made a generous cash advance. So I think they want me. They want me to really pull it off, <laughs> and I don't think they would have made that cash advance if they thought, unless they thought I could pull it off. Uh, this is the largest evangelical publisher in the um, in the even among uh, in the English language. Yes, Kendra. Yeah, I just want to ask a question where it says, um, "Like us in all respects, except for sin." Um, but if we as humans have a sinful nature, did Christ not have that part of his nature? Yes, or yes, sin? yes, 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 okay. yes. He did have it. He assumed have it? our humanity in its current state. Okay. That, that, that's the thing. He assumed our humanity so that he could be tempted, but did not sin. Okay, so it's except for... When it says there he sued our humanity except for sin, it means without actually committing sin. But you put your finger on a problem. We're not just talking about the nature. We're talking about the experience of being a human being. You with me on I'm going to make sure you are with me on this. He goes through the experience of human being. And comes out right. He experiences temptation, but not, does not succumb. There is a there's a great disposition among Orthodox to make humanity and divinity simply static natures. This is not the teaching of the fathers of the church. It's not the teaching of the Greek fathers, the Syriac fathers, or the Latin fathers. To say that he becomes like us means that he goes through the experience of time and space and that he is limited by the conditions of time and space. Yes, sir. One thing, something you said last week about this thing about Christ's talking from the cradle. Because that's does that believe that he can actually become a human being. And so the idea of you know the four houses we have directly contradict that. And yes. Contradict since then. So I mean, <coughs> these traditions where it's very relevant that people do not all believe that and actually express it. That they don't. Well, the 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 acquisitions editor of Thomas Nelson Press asked me to write this book because he believes that evangelicals need instruction on this, <laughs> which I would not have guessed because they don't really know. I don't know evangelicalism that well, but his read was the evangelicals need instruction on this, which is why he asked me to to write the book. But I have an impression sometimes that many Orthodox are really functional monophysites. There's the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're, they're out there, and we're down here. They don't realize he's here with us. You follow? The mediation. He is the mediator between God and man. That does, that's, not, that's not prominent, it seems to me, in the thinking of a lot of Orthodox. 
I think one of the reasons for that is that the, 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 the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is in fact pre-Chalcedonian. It was already in place by the year 400 and does not have the so a lot of the, form, a lot of the formularies that we have, for example, in, him, in, the, in the hymnography at Matins, the hymnography at Vespers, is, comes right out of Chalcedon. There's very little within the divine liturgy that comes out of Chalcedon. Very little. Um, that's one of the reasons why all those services are important. Not everything can be said at every service. Um, so if somebody whose who's mind and thinking is nourished by the hymnography of, of Vespers and the hymnography of Matins is going to end up in a different place than somebody who just attends the Divine Liturgy. Because in, in the Divine Liturgy there's almost no, almost no emphasis on the mediation of Christ. Almost none. The word dia appears through in Greek, appears only twice in the Divine Liturgy. One is through the compassions of thine only begotten Son, with whom thou art blessed, through the compassions. And that, and there's someplace else in the prayer, the doxology of the prayer that follows the Our Father. Through the grace and compassions, um, those are the only places. Um, and so the, the mediation of Christ for some Orthodox almost doesn't exist. Just almost doesn't exist. Our only mediator becomes the Virgin Mary. Um, that's a pastoral problem. I don't think the Orthodox actually hold false doctrine, but sometimes they function that way. They, they don't really realize, some people just don't, some Orthodox seem not to realize that he has become like us in all things and have compassion on us because he has experienced the same weaknesses that we experience. Now if one actually is very serious about his attendance at all the services during Lent, you go a long way to overcoming that problem because the epistle that all the services during Lent is from the epistle to the Hebrews which is where you get the, the, the mediation of Christ. Three times Christ is called in the cities, epistle to the, to the Hebrews. But I'll talk about that uh, during Lent. Um, let me take some... Uh, Polycarp, how close am I to the... To the... Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Great. Great. I ran off about 14 pages here. Now, when the New Testament speaks of the eternal Son's assumption of our humanity, his incarnation, that's a Latin word, by the way, which, is, which means enfleshing. I thought, that was a, I thought that was a canned milk that we had back when I was... Do they still have that? Do they still have that? It had a little red red figure on the can or something like that. It was nice. I thought about theology a lot when I was a kid. But not knowing Latin, okay, when I was five and six. I didn't learn Latin until I was nine. Okay. Not knowing Latin when I was five or six. I was often confused. Okay. I told you this morning, I stood there. When they read the gospel, the good guy was the publican. Okay. He wasn't the republican. That sounds right. Made perfect sense to me. A little bit shallow. His incarnation, his enfleshing, is described in terms of a lessening. It's a metaphor, of course. 
the embracing of a limitation, a self-emptying, an autokenosis, self-emptying. Now, in witness to this conviction, a primitive Christian hymn, partly preserved in the Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, declares, Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in morphe to you, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be seized or grasped. Now who is that, who is that in contrast to? Adam. Adam, who was made in God's image and tried to grasp equality. You shall be as gods. See, that's the theology behind the hymn. It's a contrast between Jesus, the Son of God, and Adam. But he emptied himself, heafton ekenosen, emptied himself, assuming the morphe tudulu, the the image of a slave, a slave, a bond servant. Now what's the slavery involved here? The fact that we are all in this world, to the extent that we are dominated by sin, we are slaves of sin. That's what the that's what the, the scriptures say. We are slaves of sin. And anybody who lives by sin is a slave of sin. He assumes that form. He doesn't live by sin, but he assumes that form of sinners. Now from the beginning, that is to say, because this hymn is pre-Pauline, every, every, all the exegetes of Philippians seem to agree on that because the, the, the section is in metric form. And normally if a guy's writing a letter, all of a sudden you, you've got You've got a poem in the middle of it. You presume he's quoting, don't you? you know? I mean, unless you're like Gabriel, you know, who would probably write a poem right in the middle of the, in the, in the, within their letter. But except for rare people like that, most of us don't write poems within letters. We, but we might quote one. So Christians believe that God's Son lessened himself by becoming human. Now does that mean a diminution of the divinity? Council says no. He's not, less, he's not less divine than he was before. But his condition is now qualified by being a human being. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 quotes the epistle to the Hebrews. He made himself a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That might be the way that should be read. It could also be translated he made himself for a little while lower than the angels. The braku there can, can, uh, can mean either way. Made himself a little lower than the angels, or it could have a temporal sense. He made himself a little, for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Why, according to Hebrews, that he might taste death for every man. Okay. My, my, my grandmother, well, I remember when I was a kid in elementary school, I told my grandmother that I wanted to be an angel. <laughs> and she had this look of horror on her face. Hope! Horror! And she said, But then you'll never be forgiven. Oh, wow. 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 Oh, that's magnificent. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't thought of that at all. Yeah, yeah. The angels the angel are not forgiven. Right. The angels fell, fell. It's all over. Right. It's, I, oh, wow. 
Why can't angels be forgiven? Because they can only make one choice, and they've already made it. <laughs> At least that's what the philosophers tell us. That's one thing about human being being, we can change our minds. You know, yesterday I screwed up, today I think I'm going to change my mind. It's the concept of lesser. Oh that's, oh, that's a great story. That is an absolutely great story. Thank you, Jerry. That's a great story. Angels can't be forgiven because they can't repent. I had never thought of that before. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, he, he made himself a little lower than the angels because human beings are lower than the angels or for a little while lower than the angels in order to taste death for every man. No, not just to die, but to go through the experience of death, to taste it. That's what would be one of the big emphasis in, in, in the book I'm writing is the human experience of Jesus, that he actually passes through experiences. The act of becoming a human being necessarily imposed limits on his condition and experienced. Now this limitation, St. Paul describes with a metaphor of wealth and poverty. He went from riches to rags. That used to be a song. I would go from rags to riches. You don't know that song. You remember that song? Well, Jesus went from riches to rags. Okay. That's my translation of 2 Corinthians 8 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's an early form of God became man so that man could become God. Okay. Such as you have in St. Athanasius. He went, he, he went from riches to poverty so that through his poverty we might become rich. Now servanthood, slavery, and poverty are metaphors of limitation. One of the fathers that most influenced me when I was a young man was St. Cyril of Alexandria. I remember reading St. Cyril of Alexandria in Greek, and my only access to St. Cyril of Alexandria in Greek was a thing called microfish. You, you put this, you put this film, you put this film into this projector, and it came up on this projector on the screen. See, Wally thinks I'm making this up. Wally's he's sitting back there thinking, "Oh, you still?" <laughs> and you have these dials. You turn them, and the, that's how you turn the pages. You turn these dials. You turn the pages. Your grandmother told you about that, right? <laughs> That was, the, that was my only access to the to Cyril of Alexandria in Greek was through microfish. And I would go up to the library uh, after supper and sit down and read that in Greek and turn these things. Uh. One of his, his favorite expressions of Jesus is his ex himon. One of us. One of us. His ex himon. Okay. 
In his sermons and commentaries on the Gospels, Cyril used this expression often to speak of Jesus' solidarity with all human beings by reason of the Incarnation. Now, when we inquire what sorts of limitations God's Son assumed in the Incarnation, most readers of the New Testament will, will avow that there were certain physical limitations that He assumed. They notice, for example, that he gets tired, he seems to get tired, because he goes to sleep in the back of a boat, and he's so tired he sleeps through a storm. This is an open boat. You know, rain's coming down, wind's blowing. (laughs) So it's God asleep in the boat. The only other alternative is he's faking it. He's faking it. It's God asleep in the boat, but it's the same person who wakes up, turns around, faces the wind and the wave, and says, knock it off. And it stops. It's the same person. So there's limitation, but notice there's a power within this limitation. One of the things I will emphasize a lot in the book, and I hope we'd emphasize in our life, is that he never uses this power for himself. Not a single instance that he uses it for himself. He, he's, what do you mean, turn, the, turn those st- stones into bread? What do you mean? He never uses it for himself. He always, his power is always at the service of others. Okay. That, that's, uh, I believe that's Bonhoeffer's expression, is that Christ is the man for others. That everything he has is for others. He never uses any of it for himself. And that's the model that's held out to us in the Gospels, to be a man for others. If he did not become thirsty and exhausted, what prompted him to sit bound by the well and ask a Samaritan woman for a drink? Uh, the, the hymn Dies Irae commemorates that scene. Querens me sedisti lasus. Rede misti crucem passus, tantus labor non sit casus. See, Nancy's sitting there hearing Mozart's melody for that. Actually, I'm hearing the Gregorian chant. You're hearing the Gregorian chant. Yes. Querens me sedisti lasus, rede misti crucem passus, tantus labor non sit casus. Seeking me, you sat down weary. Redeeming me, you suffered the cross. Let not such labor be in vain. Don't let it be wasted. See, for Calvin, it can't be wasted anyway because he only died for the people he foreknew were going to get there. But the idea, the idea that his blood, in my regard, might be wasted, the blood of God poured out, in my case, would be wasted. That's a horrible thought. It's a very, very uh, thought that sort of puts the screws to you, you know. Now, these limitations include a range of psychological discomforts. At the death of a beloved friend, for example, we're told, shortest verse of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Bible, this is in uh, John 11.35, in case that question ever arises when you're at checkout line over, over at, over at Jewel Osco, what is the shortest verse of the Bible? Two words, Jesus wept. Faced with the sustained and repeated infidelities of Jerusalem, quote, 
He saw the city and wept over it. Luke 19. Some experiences left him with feelings of utter exasperation. Did Jesus ever become exasperated? Yes. Yes. So when you can become exasperated, remember that. O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long must I bear with you? He's talking about Jerusalem. No, it's not the teens. Okay. At the worst experience of all, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if the eternal words, taking of our humanity, made him vulnerable to shifts of emotion, and I don't know how you can avoid seeing that in, in the gospel stories, that there are shifts of emotion. It also rendered him susceptible to temptation. Matthew says, having fasted for 40 days, he was hungry. I remember my father's comment on that when I was a little boy. Oh, really? Adequate attention to Jesus in the flesh can hardly omit those temptations to which the flesh is heir. Where am I here? Yes. Holy Scripture, at least, does not omit them. Let me read you from the second chapter of Hebrews. The second chapter of Hebrews is the earliest Christian exegesis of Psalm 8. Psalm 8. When you read the second chapter of Hebrews, have Psalm 8 close by. Mahenosh kitifkadenu, Ubenadam kitifkadenu, Vahas rehu mahachmirahim, Vakabod vahadar jaharehu. What is man? That thou art mindful of him. Of the son of man that thou visitest him. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Who is the man? It's not human beings in general. It's the henosh. Henosh. It's the male. What male are we talking about? What specific man are we talking about? Here's what Hebrews says. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brothers. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, from the earliest Christians, the temptations of Jesus were at once an expression of his full humanity and the encouraging evidence of his ability to sympathize with the trials faced by those who put their trust in him. For we have not an high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in everything tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that without sin, Kendra, is exactly where the council pulled that line. They pulled it right out of, this, of the uh, fourth chapter of, uh, of, of Hebrews. Um, 
I'm no doubt we'll see more about that during Lent because Hebrews, we, during Lent we read Hebrews. That's our, that's our epistle for most of Lent. And the gospel for Lent is, of course, Mark, which is the, which is the gospel of the cross. So I'll be saying more about that during that time. Let me go in a different direction. Among the limitations consequent to the Incarnation, I believe one of the most important to consider, and the one many Christians are most reluctant to consider, is the eternal word's assumption of human ignorance. Human ignorance. Because that is part of the human situation. In chapter 2, verse 52 of his gospel, Luke tells us, that Jesus increased in wisdom. Just those, in, in, uh, those four words, four words actually in, in, uh, in, in Greek as well. That Jesus increased in wisdom. Boy, I'm sure glad. If, I, if those four words were written, I, I, they certainly wouldn't give me a cash advance on this book. <laughs> that Jesus increased in wisdom. The plain meaning of the statement implies that he progressed from less wise to wiser. So one time he's less wise. He has to begin with less wise in order that he could increase in wisdom. Now an increase implies the making up of a deficiency. The overcoming of a limitation. In other words, prior to learning certain things, Jesus was ignorant of them. In short, the limits of the incarnation included Jesus' experience of ignorance and therefore his experience of a learning and the change that comes about from learning something. In fact, there appear to be signs of this in the Gospels. I think I gave you this one last week, but I'll take it again. When the disciples petitioned Jesus for some sort of timetable for the end of the world, he didn't say, well, there's a web page devoted to that. Go check that out. Actually, there are about, as far as I know, there's at least 100 web pages devoted to figuring out the timetable for the end of the world. And every once in a while, somebody who's gotten hold of my email sends me these things. And I pray for them. <laughs> Speaking about the end of the world, Jesus says, but of that day and that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now that's in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. In some later manuscripts, that part about the Son has been removed. I'm persuaded that the people who removed them were effective monophysites. Yes, yes, Chris. Hold on till I get there. That's going to be in my book. <laughs> yes, Jen. <laughs> See, that's why I'm writing the book. But that, but that instead, he, he had it, just as like, 
when he was 12 and he went to the temple and he was teaching the other, like, mm-hmm. these priests and stuff, um, but that it was manifested mm-hmm. at different right, times right. in his life. But it, that it was See, that is, not, that is not Chalcedonian Christology. That's monophysite. What the other what is? Um, that he that he that he didn't know that there was something lacking, or that oh that that that's Chalcedonian. But the the, the, the but, but I believe that's why that's why uh, uh, the largest evangelical press in the English language asked me to write the book because they believe that among evangelicals there's an effective monophysitism. I said I wouldn't have known that. Um, somebody like Paul Johnson. I mentioned Paul Johnson last Sunday. Paul Johnson's a very fine historian, but when he talks about Jesus knowing something, he says, well, of course he knew it. He was God. He knew everything. That case one's a monophysite. Yes, sir? I'm scanned here. A word you're saying, you said. The, um, St. Paul's verse about saying how he made him who knew no sin become sin for us. Leave that one go. Because okay. <laughs> I, belie- I believe the meaning of that is, is the double play of the word sin. It means sin and sin offering. But leave, leave that one go for right now. That won't, that won't help us. Did I see another hand back there? Yes, Michael. So again, thank you. Uh, Moody Radio, which I listen to what kind of what I asked him, what kind of reading of the gospels no, is I, that hang on I've got somebody over here Th- thanks Michael yes well, yes I, I do want to you know I mean Jesus did not know the hour that all things would come to an end. Now, so he says so. Yeah, okay. But as God, I don't understand, you know, how do we rectify that? He There's nothing to be rectified. Did he, being rich, become poor? Did he assume the full limitations of being a human being? Yes. Then you don't need to rectify anything. He assumed the full limitations of being a human being. Our, our ignorance, he shares our ignorance, and that's part of his human experience. See why I'm writing the book? Yeah, yeah, I, believe, I believe there's a great deal of effective, practical, monophysite theology floating around. Now, I never, I never, it never occurred to me, because I don't know that, that there'd be that much even evangelicalism. Um, I would not have suspected that. I would have suspected much more characteristic of Roman Catholicism, uh, because you have a, you have something that I believe is the Council of Trent that says that the humanity of Jesus always enjoyed the beatific vision. I've never been able to reconcile that with the Bible. So I've, no, I've always known this was a problem within Roman Catholicism. I was not so aware there was a problem within evangelicalism. Uh, we'll see if it's a problem within orthodoxy by whether or not the Orthodox Church and the publication of my book promptly summons the ecumenical council and condemns me. <laughs> Boy, won't that be interesting? 
you know, bonfire in the middle of uh, middle of Newport. <laughs> yes, Eve. Um, so, towards the beginning, you were talking about how Christ emptying him was an emptying of self. Yes. And I was trying to contemplate that, and it just, he's, we were talking about um, the limitation of knowledge, so it's like he was emptying his omniscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think, how did he empty out his self without becoming less God? You know, I was thinking about that. Um, are, you, are, you, are you suggesting that you don't understand that? Oh, um, well, I guess that can just help me think about it in a way that is more comprehensible that he you know emptied out his omniscience like because he was Christ always you know was the word was if, if, so he was omniscient and then when he assumed the flesh that he gave that up. The 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 person who's functioning okay is divine. He's functioning within the limitations of human being. Yeah. What did he know as he lay in the manger. Right. Exactly what other every little kid laying in, 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 in his crib knows. Ain't a lot. <laughs> we celebrate that a lot in the hymnography of Christmas. That just as he depended, his life depended on the milk from his mother's breasts. Well, he was completely dependent. So he was dependent for all his knowledge what came to him through his senses. He didn't know anything else. So then, and then I think about, you know, how did he, when did he understand that he was Messiah? Oh, I, I believe, I, I, I will deal with that in a bit. I don't believe there was any doubt ever that he, once he started to reflect on himself, that he knew who he was. Once he was older. I don't, I don't have any doubt at all whatsoever. It wasn't like some one day he woke up and said, damn, I'm the son of God. <laughs> Nancy? Uh, two comments. First of all, as a lifelong evangelical and a former Moody student, I can absolutely confirm that, that this model Christ is and that that's the word. Absolutely what I was taught. No question. Never in my experience anything other than that. And so that's the first comment. Second comment, so that I don't have to shout in the sanctuary. I'm the I'm the cleanup captain, and so please, after this is over, if you're part of, if you're on the list. Oh, notice how smoothly she worked that in. <laughs> I figured otherwise you were going to pray, and there was going to be noise, and I didn't want to have to shout. No, thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Let me get Mark here. Okay. You, you say that what he knew, he, he knew through his senses. As you do. So the woman at the well, she had affairs. How did he know that? Oh, that's, that's, that's all in here. If you just give me... Give me, give me some time. Um, I spoke about that a little bit last week, didn't I? I talked about the, the uh, very high level of spiritual sensitivity. He knows that Lazarus is dead. But he doesn't know where he's buried. Isn't that curious? He knows he's dead, and he knows he's going to raise him up. Lazarus, our, Lazarus, our friend, is dead, and I'm going down, and I'm going to wake him up. Then he gets, to, gets down to Bethany and he says, says to the pastor, where'd you bury him? <laughs> Most interesting. For this enormous limitation, but at the same time, colossal spiritual insight. We will talk about that. I've got, I deal with, uh, deal with that a lot in, these, uh, in, in the book and in these notes. When is this book coming out? I don't know. It'll be this year, though. It will be this year. Yeah, it'll be this year. 
maybe maybe the Christmas uh, catalog, something like that. We'll we'll take this up again because I've got a great deal more to say uh, about this. And you've already persuaded me that and I need to talk about this. Yes. <laughs> Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.